Yeah, that was Muse. Love their music and their covers. So welcome everyone to the Tori Says Show. So today, this morning has been a little bit odd. I had a couple of uh, connectivity issues and just all around blah type energy. Uh, and only because it's like, all right, so this is it. And I'm, uh, if I had, what is it? I know I have one. I'm looking for that right picture. It's one of these cartoon characters. I have it on one of my apps as my avatar. I don't remember the cartoon character, but she's drinking coffee and her eyes are rolling. And she's like, yeah, I'm not impressed. This is what today is for me. I'm not impressed. And the reason is, is because everyone's talking about the things that are happening. People don't seem to understand that this war is peaking now and it's happening across the planet whatever you want to call that, uh, right? And there's a lot of uprising. The IMF is trying to grab hold of Africa. We have leaders in big nations dying, resigning, like it was done, and <laughs> like it was supposed to be, but people are missing the mark. So I had a conversation this morning with people that I consider very, very smart. And they were like, well, you know, Durham's looking at the origin of Russia. I'm like, stop. No, he's not. See, that's what they want you to think, right? That's what they want you to think. People are not really paying attention. Really, he's looking at the origins of Russia. What does that mean? I want you to think about that for, for a while. And then hopefully at the end of the show, uh, when we talk about independent constitutional type things, maybe it'll make sense. So let's go with, uh, you know, what's happening, right? Uh, let's go with what happened. The sound isn't good. You're saying it's muffled. Am I really muffled? Huh. Cutting in and out. That's interesting. Is that better? Okay. So just refresh. I think maybe you need to refresh because I haven't um, changed any settings. So I don't know why it would be garbled. All right. Let's see. Is that better? I sound like a robot. Yeah. Big reveal. Let's see. Um, all right. Hmm. Interesting. Well, I'm not really saying much. Let's see if it fixes this. I want us to um, to just see what Nigel Farage had to say about Boris Johnson. You know, I'm 44, all right, and I'm thinking I I have this posed to me a lot of times. So you're going to have to find someone, you know, that is your better half that'll be with you until your end of days, and it's like, well, sooner than later. But then, secondly, like, why would you want to get another handler? See, most of these people pay attention. They've either been married for a long time or they um, they have a second or third marriage. It's always handlers. I mean, that's where Alice Jones went, you know, downhill when he found his wife on a stripper page and, and married her. It's like standards. But anyway, uh, it, this is one of the reasons that his downfall is there. No one pays attention how earwigging does help. I mean, come on prostitutes for Hunter, the liberals about the money. I mean, I'm clearly coming out to show you how earwigging work, but here's what they're telling. Prime Minister Boris Johnson has agreed 
to resign. That, according to Sky News and the BBC, we're expecting him to make a statement at any moment. Former Brexit Party leader Nigel Farage joins us now. Nigel, good morning. It's great to have you on this breaking news. Uh, what is your reaction to it? British Prime Minister Boris Johnson saying that he is going to resign. He had no choice. Literally, he had no choice. Despite getting a big mandate from the people in 2019, the truth of it is he hasn't stuck to the rules. And there is one fundamental rule between leaders and their electorates, and that is to tell the truth, even if the truth at times isn't very nice, isn't very palatable. And I'm afraid what's done for Boris Johnson is again and again, over and over, being found out, just not telling the truth. And when he's caught saying, I'm sorry, I forgot. And that has led to a catastrophic collapse in public trust. And around him, all the officials that make up government, all the different ministers, whether they're in education or health or whatever it is, over 50 of them have resigned. It's quite extraordinary. In the last 48 hours, he literally didn't have enough people left with trust in him to carry on in government. So he's gone. And my conclusion is that it's actually a very sad end for something that started you know, really in a very glittering way. Um, Brexit was the big moment in British history. And all right, I started it, but he picked it up. He ran with it. He won a general election. He delivered it. There's more work to do, but he delivered it. Um, and that should be his historical legacy. Sadly, uh, with this announcement that's to come in the next few minutes, uh, he goes out looking uh, like a prime minister it was dishonest with the British people. And that is very sad. Nigel, you mentioned that the government could not continue because there were not enough ministers. Nevertheless, Boris Johnson, up until the last couple of hours, had been insistent mm -hmm. he was not going to go. He was going to remain in office and he'd have to be dragged from office kicking and screaming. What changed? Yes, I mean, there was a quote overnight in the Sun newspaper, our big tabloid, that, you know, you'll you, you have to dip your hands in blood to get rid of me, which I thought was a horrible, uh, a horrible analogy. Uh, what changed? It's difficult to say. Uh, did he have a conversation with the Queen? Uh, did somebody in his family uh, come to him? Uh, I think in the end what happened was that a number of senior cabinet ministers just said to him, look, you know, unless you're gone today, we're going to walk out, and the, and the country literally would not have been governed at any level. And frankly, the last 24 hours, it's been, it's been farcical. It's been sort of almost like a sort of psychodrama <laughs> that's been going on in Westminster. I mean, the truth is, he should have gone 48 hours ago. It would have been cleaner. It would have been easier. But if you haven't got the men and women around you to run the country, you simply have to go. So, Nigel, what happens now? Will he um, stay as prime minister until they choose a new leader? Uh, and, and if so, who is that going to be? It, two big questions there. The first is what he's going to say in a few minutes is that he'll stay as prime minister until late September, early October to give the Conservative Party the opportunity to have a process to choose a new leader of the party and therefore a new prime minister. However, many of those 50 resignations in their letter have cast doubt upon Johnson's integrity, upon his truthfulness, upon his upon his, his fitness to serve in public office. And it's going to be very difficult to know whether he can stay on as prime minister for a few more months or whether they actually ask him to go and appoint his deputy, who's a man named Dominic Raab. The analogy that he used, what changed recently that's leading him to resign? A catastrophic loss of confidence in the country amongst those who voted Conservative back in the election of 2019 and amongst those who make up the government. 
the officials, the ministers, those who run the country, um, then resigning en masse to a point where he literally did not have enough men and women willing to take jobs to keep the country running. I've never seen anything like it. Uh, so in other words, they resigned and removed the president because they didn't like what was going on. I see. And, and everyone's going to tell you that this has to do with, um, uh, how did they say it? With the whole partying and not social distancing while everyone was on lockdown. You believe that? You believe anything. Good afternoon, everybody. Good afternoon. It, thank you. Thank you. It is clearly now the will of the Parliamentary Conservative Party that there should be a new leader of that party and therefore a new Prime Minister. And I've agreed with Sir Graham Brady, the chairman of our backbench MPs, that the process of choosing that new leader should begin now. And the timetable will be announced next week. And I've today appointed a cabinet to serve, as I will, until a new leader is in place. So I want to say to the millions of people who voted for us in 2019, many of them voting Conservative for the first time. Thank you for that incredible mandate, the biggest Conservative majority since 1987, the biggest share of the vote since 1979. And the reason I have fought so hard in the last few days to continue to deliver that mandate in person was not just because I wanted to do so, but because I felt it was my job, my duty, my obligation to you to continue to do what we promised in 2019. And of course, I'm immensely proud of the achievements of this government from getting Brexit done to settling our relations uh, with the continent for over half a century, uh, reclaiming the power for this country to make its own laws in Parliament, getting us all through the pandemic, delivering the fastest vaccine rollout in Europe, the fastest exit from lockdown, and in the last few months, leading the West in standing up to Putin's aggression in Ukraine. And let me say now to the people of Ukraine that I know that we in the UK will continue to back your fight for freedom for as long as it takes. And at the same time, in this country, we've been pushing forward a vast program of investment in infrastructure and skills and technology, the biggest in a century, because if I have one insight into human beings, it is the genius and talent and enthusiasm and imagination. Is that a Ukrainian flag on his lapel? Get the fuck out of here. Throughout the population. But opportunity is not. And that's why we must keep leveling up, keep unleashing the potential of every part of the United Kingdom. And if we can do that in this country, we will be the most prosperous in Europe. And in the last few days, I've tried to persuade my colleagues that it would be eccentric to change governments when we're delivering so much and when we have such a vast mandate and when we're actually only a handful of points behind in the polls, even in midterm after quite a few months of pretty relentless sledging and when the economic scene is so difficult domestically and internationally. And I regret uh, not to have been successful in those arguments. And of course, it's painful not to be able to see through so many ideas and, and projects myself. But as we've seen uh, at Westminster, uh, the herd instinct is powerful. When the herd moves, is he smirking? And my friends, in politics, no one is remotely indispensable. 
and our brilliant and Darwinian system will produce another leader equally committed to taking this country forward through tough times, not just helping families to get through it, but changing and improving the way we do things, cutting burdens on businesses and families, and yes, cutting taxes, because that is the way to generate the growth and the income we need to pay for great public services. And to that new leader, I say, whoever he or she may be, I say, I will give you as much support as I can. And to you, the British public, I know that there will be many people who are relieved and uh, perhaps quite a few who will also be disappointed. And I want you to know how sad I am to be giving up the best job in the world. But them's the breaks. I want to thank Carrie and our children, all members of my family who've had to put up with so much for so long. I want to thank the peerless British Civil Service for all the help and support that you have given our police, our emergency services, and of course, our fantastic NHS who at critical moment helped to extend my own period in office, as well as our armed services and our agencies that are so admired around the world and our indefatigable Conservative Party members and supporters whose selfless campaigning makes our democracy possible. I want to thank the wonderful staff here at Chequers, uh, here at number 10, and of course at Chequers, and our fantastic prop force detectives, the one group, by the way, uh, who never leak. Above all, I want to thank you, the British public, for the immense privilege that you have given me. And I want you to know that from now on until the new Prime Minister is in place, your interests will be served and the government of the country will be carried on. Being Prime Minister is an education in itself. I've traveled to every part of the United Kingdom. And in addition to the beauty of our natural world, I found so many people possessed of such boundless British originality and so willing to tackle old problems in new ways that I know that even if things can sometimes seem dark now, our future together is golden. Thank you all very much. Thank you. And that Darwinian government will in turn turn their survival of the fittest to continue the agenda, like he said. Now, I urge all of you, when, you're, when you've got nothing to do, when you have some time on your hands, you should uh, look up Them's the Breaks on, on YouTube. Why? It's going to take you to a very specific episode of a cartoon. I'd like you to watch that. So since their Darwinian system, survival of the fittest, will produce another leader equally committed to taking the country forward through tough times, <laughs> it'll be quite fascinating to see how that reaches. Like I said, this all comes back down. To what in the world is Durham really investigating? What? But that's England. Oh, you just watch. Because they've turned it up a notch. They're coming really, really, really fast. And you know what's funny? All the people that are fighting for this nation are being shit on. And you know who says it best? They're going to try to charge them which is why he probably should have pardoned himself. Not because he committed a crime, don't you understand me? Because these people are criminals. They frame people. 
they frame people. They are criminals. They will frame you. They will make the public hate you. They will do anything in their power to get it done. But unfortunately, good is a lot stronger and a lot more persistent than evil. And these aren't average people telling you that they frame you. This is the for former mayor of New York City, the man that created RICO. He made it. Huh. But you know, he doesn't know what he's talking about. All these other losers know what they're talking about. Because <laughs> they play the game and they tango. The real people don't play games and don't tango. That's the way it is. Now, let's look at Sosa from CNN, what he has to say. And I'm going to tell you this. Which arrest will come first? I don't know. But they're on it. Think of it this way. What the J6 Select Committee is doing right now is that they're pretty much a grand jury in Washington, D.C. You can't intervene. You can't appeal. And it's not even necessary for them to see it exculpatory evidence. They don't need to see that. In essence, it's almost like the FISA court. You give them what they want that meets the requirement or whatever that they could say. Well, it kind of looked persuasive, kind of like, you know, Judge Collier did. And all you have to do is watch the shit show and die a ham sandwich. It's the same thing. And this is because they're at this point. I mean, their whole abortion has been banned. Let's burn the country down didn't work. Low energy, of course, and not a lot of money. They've been trying to launder money as fast as possible, but they can't. So what's going on? How are they going to fix this? How is it going to fix? Well, we'll see. Here's what they have to tell you. Poor idiot. If Donald Trump is ultimately criminally charged and convicted for what he did and what he didn't do on January 6th, it may well be a handful of young female former staffers who have brought him down. In late June, Cassidy Hutchinson, a former top aide to White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, testified before the January 6th House Select Committee. What she recounted painted an absolutely devastating portrait of Donald Trump. To me, three moments in particular stood out. Moment one. Hutchinson said she was told that when Trump got back into the presidential limousine known as the Beast on January 6th and was told that he could not join protesters at the Capitol, he lost it. The then president tried to grab the steering wheel, and when one of his security detail reached to stop him, he lunged toward that man's throat. Moment two, Trump, in expletive-laid language, urged that people with weapons, guns, knives, and the like be let through the magnetometers before his speech to that January 6th Stop the Steel rally. His goal? Ensure that the photographs and video of the event showed a packed crowd all listening to him. They're not here to hurt me, Trump told people, according to Hutchinson's testimony. Moment three, Meadows, Mark that is, when pressed by White House counsel Pat Cipollone to say something more amid Hang Mike Pence chants at the U.S. Capitol, responded, according to Hutchinson, this way, quote, Trump thinks Mike deserves it. He doesn't think they are doing anything wrong, end quote. And that doesn't even include Trump allegedly throwing his lunch against the wall. 
Hutchinson described ketchup dripping down said wall when he read that Attorney General Bill Barr had told the Associated Press that he could find no evidence of widespread election fraud in the 2020 election. Quote, there were several times that I was aware of him throwing dishes or flipping the tablecloth so that all the contents of the table went on the floor, she added. Never flipped a table in my life. The portrait painted of Trump by Hutchinson was of an out-of-control wild man who neither understood nor cared about the impact his actions actively undermining the 2020 election were having on the body politic. It was a devastating and damaging look behind the curtain, and one that cut through in a way that none of the previous public testimony in front of the January 6th committee had, at, at least for me. Now comes word that another former Trump aide, Deputy White House Press Secretary Sarah Matthews, is set to testify publicly before the committee, maybe as soon as next week. Matthews first appeared before the committee in February to offer a de deposition behind closed doors. John Wood, a former senior investigator for the January 6th committee, told CNN that he led that initial questioning of Matthews and described her as, quote, an extremely credible witness. He added this. She's very young, uh, but had a lot of responsibility as deputy press secretary in the White House. Saw a lot of what went on and has been publicly reported. She resigned because she had deep concerns about what happened on January 6th in the lead up. So she'll be able to help fill in some of those gaps uh, about what happened on the buildup to January 6th and January 6th itself. Matthews was one of a handful of Trump aides and advisors to resign her post at the White House immediately following the events of January the 6th. Quote, I was honored to serve in the Trump administration and proud of the policies we enacted, she said in a statement announcing that resignation. She went on to add this. As someone who worked in the halls of Congress, I was deeply disturbed by what I saw today. Our nation needs a peaceful transfer of power, end quote. In a Twitter thread on the one-year anniversary of the Capitol riot, Matthews was absolutely unsparing in her criticism of the former president. Quote, Make no mistake, the events on the 6th were a coup attempt, a term we'd use had they happened in any other country. And former President Don Donald Trump failed to meet the moment, she wrote, adding, while it might be easier to ignore or whitewash the events of that day for political expediency, if we're going to be morally consistent, we need to acknowledge these hard truths, end quote. Matthews also used her Twitter feed to defend Cassidy Hutchinson against the attacks that followed her Testimony in front of the January 6th committee. Quote, anyone downplaying Cassidy Hutchinson's role or her access in the West Wing either doesn't understand how Trump White House worked or is attempting to discredit her because they're scared of how damning this testimony is, wrote Matthews. She added, for those complaining of hearsay, I imagine the January 6th committee would welcome any of those involved to deny these allegations under oath, end quote. Oh, <laughs> While it obviously remains to be seen what Matthew says when she does eventually testify publicly, her access to President Trump and other key players in the administration in the, in the days leading up to January 6th provide an invaluable perspective for the committee and the rest of us. If passed his prologue, that's probably bad news for Donald Trump. And that is the point. So we make new point episodes every two so what is So what is the point? What is the point, you guys? What is the point? Think about it. What is the point? I'll tell you what the point is. The point is proximity. Oh, she was really close up to the days. She was the one that did it up to the days. She was close to him. Proximity. It's always about proximity. Every single time, it's proximity. Nothing else. This is how, oh, guilt by association, you know? And stop. 
because all of you are also guilty of doing that. Oh, so-and-so posed with a picture of them. Oh, they're talking to them. Oh, they used to be part of this organization. Oh, this proximity, proximity, proximity. That, but again, you know, what is it that's going to be said? People need to think about it. They've already drafted the indictment. I'm telling you that as a fact. You think it's funny? <laughs> it's happening. But will they announce the other one first? I don't know. But I'll show you why they're doing it. So much is happening. And I'm going to show it to you. So President Trump apparently is bracing for an indictment, they say. And Cipollone made a deal so that he can talk to them. But remember, what is it exactly that um, they do? Why is it in an issue? This is, this is what people need to think about because of things like this. They're going to try to, they're gonna try to charge him with that, which is why he probably should have pardoned himself. Not because he committed a crime, don't you understand me? Because these people are criminals. They frame people. Yes, they do. He knows that. I know that for a fact. They frame people. They frame people. I don't know what's going on with my microphone. I'm working on it, guys. But they frame people. That's exactly what they do. They frame people. Developing right now, CNN has confirmed that former White House counsel Pat Cipollone will testify before the January 6th committee on Friday. But his testimony is going to be handled differently than other witnesses. Let's take you to the White House now with CNN's chief White House correspondent, Caitlin Collins, on these new developments. Caitlin, what is going to be different about Cipollone's testimony? Well, Boris, you're not going to see Pat Cipollone testify publicly like Cassidy Hutchinson did in that bombshell testimony. The former aide to Mark Meadows coming forward, making so many revelations that included a lot of stories about Pat Cipollone, comments oh, that he had made, no pushing way. back on those efforts to overturn the election. Instead, we are told that Pat Cipollone, the former Trump White House counsel, has agreed to sit down for a transcribed interview on Friday with the January 6th committee. This will be behind closed doors, but we are told by my colleague Pamela Brown that it will be taped, so you will see it on camera. That's different than the first time Pat Cipollone met with the committee back in April when he was not under oath. It was more of an informal sit-down with the committee, but he had resisted testifying so far, even though Liz Cheney had directly called on him to do so, saying that they believed his testimony was needed and that it would be critical. He had not wanted to do so because he was uh, the White House counsel. He felt that the institution, that is you know, not something typically you would see the top lawyer at the White House going forward to testify before a congressional committee. But things changed last week when he got a subpoena from the committee, and that was what changed his thinking here. And so we are told that he intended to comply with it. They extended it a little bit for us to go until Friday. And so he is expected now to sit down with them for several hours Friday morning. And, of course, the big question will be how consequential his testimony will be to this investigation, because Pat Cipollone was at the center of so many of these conversations that Trump had, you know, leading up to the election, during the election, afterwards, as he was resisting turning over power to President Biden. And so that will be critical. This is a huge development that he will finally be sitting down with the committee on Friday, Boris. Yeah, we shouldn't expect a, a John Dean moment, but we'll see exactly how his testimony might impact the next hearing come next Tuesday. Caitlin Collins from the White House, thank you so much. Our CNN senior legal analyst, former federal prosecutor, Ellie Honig, here now to share his insights and expertise. Ellie, let's start with this. We've heard at just about every recent hearing how important Pat Cipollone is how big of a deal it is that they get him to come in and do this interview? 
Well, John, Pasipaloni could be an absolutely pivotal witness. If we were to make a very, very short list of people who had insider access at crucial junctures, Cipollone would absolutely be on that list. We know already that he was present for and at least witnessed the effort to weaponize the Justice Department. He was present for these wild conversations about potentially seizing voting machines. We know he was present for and at least witnessed some of the outreach to state officials and state legislatures. And most importantly, John, he was physically present in the White House, in the West Wing during key moments of January 6th. And if he can lay those out for the committee, that could be crucial evidence. He he does, Ellie, have some legitimate privilege claims, correct? Yeah, he does and he doesn't. What he does not really have here is an attorney-client privilege because as White House counsel, you do not have an attorney-client relationship with the president, with Donald J. Trump. You represent the presidency, the building, the institution, so to speak. He might have legitimate executive privilege concerns, however, which would relate to his one-on-one conversations with Donald Trump where they're discussing sort of official matters of state. Now, that said, it appears the committee, if we go by last time, may carve that out, may allow him not to testify about that. If that's the deal they strike, they will be giving up certain important information. But I think they've calculated that something is better than nothing. And here there's still an awful lot of something left to get from him. So let's continue the conversation with me in studio to share their reporting and their insights. CNN's Melanie Zanona. Sungmin Kim of the Associated Press and Tia Mitchell of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Uh, so we get Pat Cipollone. We won't see it on Friday, but he will testify on Friday. And I suspect we will see it on Tuesday when the committee holds its next public hearing. People at home say, who is Pat Cipollone? Why is he so important? Well, let's let people close to Donald Trump tell us why. Pat Cipollone thought the idea was uh, was nutty and had uh, what point uh, confronted Eastman uh, basically with the same sentiment. Pat expressed the, his admiration for the vice president's actions on the day of the 6th. Obviously, he had lost the election and I hadn't said anything to him. And so Cipollone said, you know, I think it's time you come over here. And uh, so I came over to meet with the president in the Oval Office. Him and the team were always saying, oh, we're going to resign. We're not going to be here if this happens, if that happens. So I kind of took it up to just be whining, to be honest with you. Did you hear the White House Counsel's Office say that um, this plan to have alternate electors meet and cast votes for Donald Trump in states that he had lost was not legally sound? Yes, sir. Big get, a giant get for the committee. A huge breakthrough for, for the committee. Pat Cipollone initially didn't want to testify. They had been increasing public pressure on him to do so. The committee issued a subpoena, and now he's agreed to at least a closed-door interview. And he is such a key witness. For a couple of reasons. Number one, he can corroborate much of what Cassidy Hutchison testified about, which is really important for the committee right now because she has been under attack from Trump and his allies. And as we saw, he is such a key witness to so many pivotal episodes, both leading up to January 6th and on January 6th. He can speak to the legal concerns and what legal exposure he thought Trump had. He was apparently a part of a conversation where Mark Meadows and him were talking about how Trump said Mike Pence deserves it in uh, reference to the rioters chanting, hang Mike Pence. And you mentioned Cassie Hutchinson. She obviously the top aide to the White House chief of staff at the time, Mark Meadows. Her testimony was quite compelling and dramatic and quite damning of Donald Trump and his conduct. She says that on January 6th, everyone knew Donald Trump was going to go speak to the big rally. She says everyone in the White House knew that Trump then wanted to go to the United States Capitol. And she says Pat Cipollone said, no way. Mr. Cipollone said something to the effect of, please make sure we don't go up to the Capitol, Cassidy. Keep in touch with me. We're going to get charged with every crime imaginable if we make that movement happen. Critical, Sungmin, in the sense that you have the White House counsel 
saying crime, these, this is potentially criminal behavior and also critical because Trump world has attacked Cassidy Hutchinson and her credibility if Trump's own White House counsel backs her up. I mean, that's a really striking statement. We're going to get charged with every crime in the book if we go to the Capitol like Donald Trump wanted on January 6th. But he, right, this is a very critical witness for so many different reasons. But again, another reason is bolstering the credibility of Cassie Hutchinson. And I think part, obviously Pat Cipollone coming in and talking to the committee, I'm sure we will see uh, clips from the interview at future hearings of what he tells the committee. Um, but at the same time, there are other ways that the January 6th committee uh, is, you know, bolstering Cassidy Hutchins' credibility as well. They are bringing in a former deputy press secretary, Sarah Matthews, who was actually one of the first public defenders of Cassidy Hutchinson after that hearing last week when Trump world had started to attack her credibility. So I think you're going to see big efforts like this to reveal more about not only what uh, what what Donald Trump was doing and more of these details that day, but very uh, a concerted effort to corroborate these details as well. And the committee in Washington has done bold and amazing work, remarkable work. And now we have this grand jury in Georgia uh, where your newspaper is based, Tia, uh, making a bold strike here. Look, let's put the graphic back up. This is sitting United States Senator Lindsey Graham, subpoenaed by this special grand jury. We know he called Brad Raffensperger at least twice after the election. Raffensperger, of course, the Secretary of State in Georgia, saying, hey, can you take another look at absentee ballots? They were upset. The absentee ballots were being counted, and they were predominantly Democratic, and it was helping uh, Joe Biden in the count. And then you have all these lawyers there again, Rudy Giuliani and some of the other lawyers testified to the legislature with bogus fraud claims. John Eastman was part of this. Let's create fake electors, send them up to Washington, throw January 6th into chaos when they try to certify the election. Uh, what does it tell you that the grand jury and the prosecutors are moving so quickly and going so high in the Trump inner circle? Yeah, to me, it tells us that the, the prosecutors, the special grand jury feels like they're getting somewhere and that, as was mentioned earlier, they are going to the very top the fact that they subpoenaed, you know, Donald Trump's right hand man and John Eastman being one of the most prominent stop the steal advocates means they think it goes all the way to the top. And that's a theme we're seeing not just with the special grand jury, but also with the January 6th investigation. The question is, will it will it end in charges? We don't know that, but they're definitely trying to get information from that inner circle. Right. And we'll be lit. Obviously, uh, Lindsey Graham already says he will fight. We expect the other lawyers will fight as well. This grand jury, just important for the process, it's a fact finding grand jury. Then it can make a re recommendation to the prosecutor who then would have to seek charges. So it's a multi step process. A multi step process. Is the sound better now? Um, <laughs> is the sound better now? I'm hoping that the sound is better now. Let's just see. I'm going to wait because there's a delay in, in transparent. Is the sound better? Yes. Okay, perfect. So let's continue. <laughs> uh, so Pat Cipollone, I just want to tell you, was right in a lot of things that he said. When people were telling him ideas uh, of how to function or, you know, what he needs to be doing or how he needs to be doing it, right, is... Uh, is something that he stood by. He said, you should not, you know, deploy the military. That could be a crime. The ideas that were given to the president, he was right. And the mayor stood right by him to support him in that because it was the right thing to do, right? It was the right thing to do. And he shouldn't have done what they were egging the president on to do. Now, um, the funny thing is, is that the top aide that CNN is so excited about, uh, you know, testifying is going to be a potato. You know, when they flip the desks and stuff and, and, said these, and said these things, I was thinking that sounds good. 
who else do we know flipped tables when they were upset? Just makes it seem all the more serendipitous. Getting some uh, information about, about a new witness, witness who's agreed to testify publicly in front of the January 6th Select Committee. What can you tell us? Yeah, and it's a significant one, Wolf. Uh, CNN learning that Sarah Matthews, who's the former deputy press secretary in the Trump administration, was there on January 6th and then sh and resigned shortly after because of she, she was upset with the way the former president and his staff handled January 6th, has agreed to testify publicly at an upcoming hearing. Now, we don't expect it to be a part of next Tuesday's hearing, which was just announced uh, a few minutes ago by the committee. Uh, that hearing will focus on domestic extremism and white nationalism and its ties to the Trump White House. Uh, Sarah Matthews could be involved more in a hearing that focuses on Trump's lack of attention to what was happening on January 6th. She, of course, is among the former Trump uh, White House allies who have rushed to the defense of Cassidy Hutchinson, the star witness uh, that we saw at the last hearing. Congressman Comstock, expanding or bringing us back here to Washington, we expect to hear from Sarah Matthews. I mean, you've been in Republican politics a long time. Um, Sarah Matthews, if, if we hear from her, uh, there was a pretty interesting tweet uh, from her that I think we can show everyone um, uh, that she put up about Cassidy Hutchinson, essentially saying that, that Cassidy Hutchinson uh, was brave and that anybody downplaying uh, her role is trying to discredit her because they're scared. Um, there are a lot of young women uh, stepping up here. What does it say to you that Sarah Matthews may be the next witness? Well, I think you've seen with this committee, uh, the women are leading from uh, Liz Cheney, I also like to point out that Adam Kinzinger has two as Republican people <laughs> who are course. doing this to a great threat, um, and he's getting threats against his family. But I think Cassidy Hutchinson's uh, testimony was very impressive. And now you're going to have someone who is in the middle of the press office, worked with Kaylee McEnany, was her deputy, who probably on that day, in the days leading into that, was all in the middle of this. Remember, we have all those uh, texts from Mark Meadows back and forth to Fox News when, when Sean Hannity saying, hey, the council's office is gonna quit, you can't do this. Sean Hannity and Kaylee McEnany were, were talking and texting and, during that time. Well, probably I would imagine Sarah Maxwell, in addition to being able to Matthews. confirm Matthews, uh, I mean, and able to confirm a lot of the um, information that Cassidy Hutchison testified to is going to be able to give additional information about what was going on in a, in a lot of detail. And I think this is coming together very well and, and very seriously because I know when, when I was in my previous life, I was a counsel yeah. on a committee, we did do referrals. And the documentation that we got sometimes was a little ahead of the Justice Department, but it was and sometimes different from what the Justice Department got. But now you're seeing the Justice Department also pick up the ball and they're doing right. things and it's coming together well. And it's not going to just be he said, or she said, she said, it's going to be a lot of documentary records and MVP Under goes oath. to Mark Meadows, who in real time, you see all of those texts that went on that confirm really what these women Text are saying. Text from Mark Meadows, it's like the name of a bad play or something like that. <laughs> Sarah Matthews, who is a former deputy press secretary, uh, spoke to the January 6th committee. We've seen a little of her testimony, but she's now agreed, according to two sources, to testify at an upcoming hearing. What questions is the committee going to have for her, do you think? I think it's going to be, number one, state of mind about what was happening, which she observed with former President Trump. I do think the committee is using her to bolster Cassidy Hutchinson, the other former aide who we saw testify and who has come under pretty intense attacks uh, from people around former President Trump, questioning specific pieces of her testimony and trying to raise questions about her credibility. So I think that's a, a big piece of the goal. Here. Who is Sarah Matthews? She's a former deputy press secretary. I mean, she was not, you know, a senior aide. She was somebody, however, 
the junior aides in, in all of Washington, and you know this and you know this, see a lot, right? So, I mean, she was in a bunch of rooms. She was aware of a number of things that were going on, exactly what the committee is hoping to get from her. I think we have to see. But I do think that a big piece of it is this is supposed to bolster what they not got from Cassidy Hudgens. Yeah, and she and others knew that it was a very bad idea when Trump sent them. And now we have Lindsey Graham. He's been called to the carpet to testify in a sealed grand jury in Georgia about elections and what happened in Georgia. So weird. Let's know what he has to say. A Georgia grand jury has subpoenaed several Trump insiders, including Senator Lindsey Graham, Rudy Giuliani, and a handful of Trump legal advisors over their efforts to overturn the state's 2020 election results. Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis launched a criminal probe after this now infamous phone call from the former president to Georgia's top election official. So what are we going to do here, folks? I only need 11,000 votes. Fellas, I need 11,000 votes. Give me a break. Uh, You know, we have that in spades already. CNN's Sarah Murray joins us now with the latest. Sarah, uh, bring us up to speed on the investigation. Well, sure. You know, we know she has been conducting this criminal probe into whether these efforts Donald Trump and his allies made in Georgia could have actually violated the law. But this is a significant new round of subpoenas because look at who is targeted. I mean, you're talking about Rudy Giuliani, who is Donald Trump's personal attorney, talking about South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham, a handful of these other legal advisors. You know, Cleta Mitchell there was on the call with Donald Trump and Brad Raffensperger when Trump asked Raffensperger to find the votes for him to win. John Eastman and Ken Cheeseborough both sort of pushed this fake electors plot in Georgia. But more importantly, when you look at this group of people, you are getting closer to Donald Trump's inner circle. Now, all these people have been subpoenaed as witnesses. It's not clear whether any of them may also be targets of this investigation. Most of the folks we reached out to did not respond to our request to comment. Rudy Giuliani's attorney declined to comment. But we are now getting a statement just this morning from Senator Lindsey Graham's lawyers, and they have made it clear that the senator plans to contest his subpoena and challenge it in court. They believe there's a separation of powers issue here. And this is what they said, the attorneys in their statement. They said, this is all politics. Fulton County is engaged in a fishing expedition and working in concert with the January 6th committee in Washington. So it's very clear that at least Lindsey Graham plans to fight his subpoena. I wouldn't be surprised, Boris, if we see other folks try to mount legal challenges to the subpoenas that they've received. Yeah, Sarah, please stay with us because joining us now is Patricia Murphy. Uh, We want to bring her into the conversation. She's a political columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and a co-host of the podcast Politically Georgia. And Patricia, your paper broke the news of these subpoenas. What about them stands out to you? A number of things stand out about these subpoenas. In addition to what Sarah said about these being the really the closest we've seen these subpoenas get to Donald Trump, these are also the first out-of-state subpoenas that we've seen from Fonnie Willis. And so we're starting to see her these concentric circles of uh, people around Donald Trump. This is the absolute closest she's gotten. Um, it's also really important to know what she's really zeroing in on are a legislative hearing that happened in the state of Georgia where Rudy Giuliani came to testify and raise all sorts of questions and conspiracies about the election, saying they were fraudulent 
in those committee hearings, people are not required to swear an oath to tell the truth. So we really had a full view of the conspiracies that they were pushing, not just on Georgia voters, but on Georgia lawmakers as well. The other piece that we see in these um, subpoenas is that they're focusing on that effort to have fake electors for Donald Trump, all of these people who have been named, also who've been brought in. And we are going to hear from the governor, Brian Kemp. He has agreed to testify over video. So all of these are really zeroing in on those two pieces, those two events here in Georgia. Uh, Sarah, you actually spoke with Fannie Willis back in February, and she did some uh, foreshadowing. Let's uh, show our viewers uh, some of what she shared with you. I imagine that we're going to be issuing subpoenas to a lot of people and that all of them are not going to welcome our invitation to come speak with us. Uh, You just noted how many of them are not (laughs) going to welcome that invitation. Uh, One of the big questions, though, is she going to subpoena the former president himself? What are you hearing about that? Well, you know, of course, that is an an open question. It's something she could try to do. I think it's probably unlikely only because Donald Trump is very clearly, you know, a target in this investigation. They made it clear through these subpoenas, through these other court documents that they are looking at the activities of Donald Trump and his allies. But Trump is really the sort of center of what this scheme was in Georgia. And that call you played at the beginning, you know, with him and Brad Raffensperger is really the heart of that. So I would be surprised. But, you know, you can't rule anything out. I think a, a number of folks were a little bit surprised to see the subpoenas go out to Senator Graham and Rudy Giuliani. Yeah. And Patricia, we can't ignore, uh, we have reporting that indicates at any moment Donald Trump is going to announce his candidacy for president in the 2024 election. This case, though, legal experts point to it as the one that perhaps holds the most legal jeopardy for him and his allies. How could this case impact his decision to run and his announcement? Yeah, well, there's certainly um, a lot of legal exposure down here. I can tell you that this is a very real investigation. And Fannie Willis has said she would not have pursued this if she didn't think that there was a lot of there there. I think the real question for Donald Trump is going to be his political support. Are Republicans just exhausted of the series of exposures of scandals? Would they like to turn the sub? Would they like to change the subject, turn the page? We're hearing that from some Republicans down here in Georgia. Um, so they may be looking for a fresh start. Um, Donald Trump might use his own announcement to distract from this. But I think we're starting to see some real fatigue from Republicans down here in Georgia ready to change the subject as well. With us now, New York Law School professor and former prosecutor at the New York District Attorney's Office, Rebecca Royfe, and CNN senior legal analyst and former federal prosecutor Ellie Honig. Everyone remembers the phone call that Donald Trump placed to the Georgia Secretary of State saying, find me 11,000 votes there. That's all I need. This investigation is going far beyond that, Ellie. What do you make, though, of these people now being issued subpoenas? What does it tell you? So it tells me exactly where the DA is looking. They're looking at Donald Trump. This is a batch of subpoenas aimed directly at the inner circle. If you were to draw a conceptual circle around Donald Trump, these seven people would be in it. A couple things that are important to know about the subpoenas, though. First of all, prosecutors, as a matter of ethics and fair practice, do not subpoena targets, meaning somebody you believe you're likely to charge. And so that includes, somewhat surprisingly, given that he apparently lied to the Georgia legislature, Rudy Giuliani. So these seven people are unlikely to be charged. The other thing is they're all going to litigate these subpoenas. They're going to claim the uh, attorney-client privilege for the attorneys. Lindsey Graham, senator, may claim the speech and debate clause, an obscure clause of the Constitution. So it's going to take weeks or months to litigate these things out. Let's talk about the Lindsey Graham part of this. You have a sitting senator who has been subpoenaed in this case. I mean, how big of a deal is that? 
I think it's extraordinary. I mean, this is not usual case, of course, but in this particular situation to uh, subpoena somebody who's a sitting um, congressperson, you know, it, it's significant and it shows how far reaching this um, investigation is at this point. Does that speech and debate clause protect him? Is, is that going to is that going to hold water? You know, I don't think so. I think it's, you know, it's certainly a, an issue that will get litigated. But I think, you know, at this point, it's a, this is a criminal grand jury that is looking for evidence. And um, I don't think that will protect him from what the, you know, from giving this particular testimony. So it's going to be a professor's dream come true because it's the <laughs> kind of thing we talk about but never actually happens. The speech and debate clause essentially says a member of Congress cannot be questioned in some other body, meaning outside of Congress, but it has to relate to their legislative duties. Lindsey Graham's going to have to convince a court that his phone call to Brad Raffensperger made a couple weeks before Trump's phone call was somehow within the scope of his legislative duties. What about Ellie's first point here? When you look at the office hierarchy, what this tells us about who they're investigating, because this is the highest level in the operation after Election Day. I mean, when you're doing Rudy Giuliani, and John Eastman and Lindsey Graham, you're talking about the top layer of people who were supporting Donald Trump during that period. It only leaves basically one person higher than that to investigate. Exactly. And just like in the federal system, in the state system, if somebody is pulled into the grand jury, they get a kind of immunity that makes it much harder for prosecutors to turn around and prosecute that person. So you look for who the person is, the last person standing. And the last person standing here who hasn't been called in and hasn't been subpoenaed is the former president himself. So clearly he is the target of this investigation. That doesn't mean that he's necessarily going to be indicted. It doesn't necessarily mean he's going to be convicted, but it does mean that that is who they are looking at. Can I just note the contrast in investigative approaches we're seeing between DOJ on the one hand and and the DA in Fulton County on the other? As Rebecca just said, these subpoenas go right to the top versus the DOJ approach, which we've heard Merrick Garland say endless times, we start at the bottom and we work our way up. They're both taking forever, by the mm-hmm. way. I mean, we're a year and a half out. and Nobody's, nobody's really charged anyone of any power structure, uh, but very different investigative approaches. You're- now I'm going to tell you this. What they did with Lindsey Graham is for our benefit. I subpoenaed a congressman. He had immunity under the law, right? Allow them to set precedent, allow them to say that now we can bring on people in their official capacity and question them. This is all ammunition we're going to need for the impeachment. And we're not talking about President Trump. And we're not talking about President Select Biden. Everything that they're doing is based on them. <laughs> oh my God. Again. They frame people. That's how bad they are. But what if you knew they frame people and you knew how they frame them, then therefore you can deconstruct the frame. You're going to understand today exactly what Durham's task really was. They've been telling you. And you just haven't been listening accordingly. So, uh, you know, during this break, I think we should, uh, you know, watch something awesome. And I think it's awesome to see people that have certain um, activated uh, uh, skills through this amazing quantum computer found between your ears, those amazing six inches. See you all in about seven minutes. Welcome Welcome to to Tatan Archive. 
Savant syndrome is defined as a condition in which a person demonstrates capacities or abilities that are greatly in excess to that of which would be considered normal. People with Savant syndrome may have neurodevelopmental disorders, notably autism spectrum disorders or brain injuries. For this installment, we're counting down 10 extraordinary savants that are capable of mind-blowing things. Number 10. Jonathan Lerman Jonathan Lerman is an autistic savant with an IQ of just 53. At just two years old, Lerman would begin to slide into long silences and would be diagnosed autistic just a year later. While his autism made it difficult for him to communicate in a typical manner, his artistic ability would help him express what he was thinking. By the age of 10, he began drawing charcoal portraits of friends and people he had seen, even if he had just made them up in his mind. At the age of 14, Lerman had his pieces appearing in New York art galleries. Number 9. Stephen Wiltshire Diagnosed with autism at a young age, Stephen Wiltshire was sent to a school for special needs children. There, his passions were encouraged and he would find a love of drawing. Mute since a very young age, Stephen would use his art to communicate since childhood, not learning to speak until he was nine. He began drawing highly detailed and incredibly accurate portraits of things that he saw. Stephen's talent, however, goes much further than just that. In 2009, he was flown over Tokyo for a mere 20 minutes and upon his return to land, was able to draw a 10-meter or nearly 33-foot long picture of the city. Number 8. Daniel Tammet Facing terrible epileptic seizures as well as diagnosis of autism at the age of 4, Daniel developed the ability to visualize and calculate numbers in his head. Daniel Temet can calculate numbers on a massive scale, once reciting pi from memory to the 22,514th decimal, a feat he accomplished on Pi Day to raise funds for the National Society for Epilepsy. As well as his amazing mathematical talent, Tammet is capable of learning languages at an unprecedented rate, learning Icelandic in just seven days. Daniel's form of autism is incredibly uncommon, even among other savants, as he is able to articulate his thoughts clearly. Number 7. Kim Peek If you've ever heard of the movie Rain Man, then you've heard the story of Kim Peek, though you probably didn't know it. Born with severe brain damage, Kim's childhood doctor suggested his father send him to an institution and forget about him, as his developmental disabilities were thought to keep him from walking, let alone anything else. Kim's father didn't agree and returned home with his son. He does have problems. Walking and learning is difficult for him. However, he has the ability to read books two pages at once in roughly three seconds. Not just that, but he remembers everything he reads in them. Number 6. Leslie Lemke In an unfortunate twist of fate, Leslie Lemke was born with severe birth defects, ones that required the removal of his eyes. His birth mother gave him up for adoption, and it was at that point that one May Lemke took him in as one of her own at just six months of age. At age 16, Leslie displayed his hidden talent when May woke up in the middle of the night to find Leslie playing Tchaikovsky's Piano Concerto No. 1. Leslie had no musical training, but still managed to play flawlessly after just hearing the song one time. Leslie now plays all kinds of music, and just like he did with the Tchaikovsky piece, he needs only to hear it once. Number 5. Tony de Bloy. Born premature and underweight, Tony de Bloy was hardly breathing. 
the doctors rushed to place an oxygen mask on him, unbeknownst to them at the time, that too much oxygen causes blindness. Couple blindness with slow physical development, then add in autism, and you have the challenges that Tony DeBloy faces every day. At age two, Tony sat down in front of a piano for the first time. Growing into music, he learned to play over 20 different instruments, including guitar, trumpet, and the ukulele. It's estimated that Tony has roughly 8,000 musical pieces memorized, which he learned all by ear. Number four, Jason Paget. Though most people with savant syndrome are born with it, others can acquire it through severe trauma and brain injury, such as the case of Jason Paget. After being brutally beaten during a mugging, Jason awoke the next day in the hospital, though something was different. He now sees the world overlaid in complex mathematical formulas. Over time, he would begin to transcribe what he saw through drawings. These drawings took the form of intricate fractal form shapes and patterns. When neurologists took scans of his brain, what they found was his brain activated rarely used portions to compensate for the damaged areas. Number 3. Orlando Sorel Orlando Sorel was not born autistic or brain damaged, but rather known as an acquired savant. One day, Sorel was playing baseball with some friends at age 10. Sorel was struck in the left side of the head by a ball, but was able to finish the game. Figuring he was okay once his headache cleared, he never thought to seek medical attention. Sorel came to find he developed a talent called calendar calculating, meaning he could tell you what day of the week any date fell on. Even more amazing, he can tell you what the weather was like on that day where he was. Number 2. Alonzo Clemens Due to a head injury he suffered when he was just a child, Alonzo Clemens lost much, but in return gained a beautiful and magnificent talent. Determined by doctors to have an IQ of no higher than 40, Clemens was left to be seemingly emotionless, though his face would light up with joy with clay in his hands. You see, Clemens gained a gift of art. When he looks at an animal, he's able to create a sculpture of very fine detail using only his hands. His sense of touch is so accurate that he's even able to make these sculptures in the dark. Number 1. Flo and Kay Lyman Florence and Catherine Lyman, also known as the Rain Man Twins, are said to be the only female autistic savant twins in the world. Even more impressive is the fact that they are the only pair of savant twins with the same talents. They have the ability of calendar calculation and can tell you what the weather was like, what a TV personality was wearing, and what they ate for nearly every day of their lives. The twins even went as far as to document what color clothing their favorite TV host wore, including Dick Clark from the $100,000 Pyramid. Hey everyone, thanks for watching. If you'd like to see more videos like this, be sure to visit and, and sign, sign up with our, our friends at Geek Fuel by using our affiliate link found. So in other words, there are people that have activated certain portions of their DNA where certain uh, abilities to write junk DNA are able to be retrieved as well. I said this before that our DNA has about 90 percent 95% of it is deemed junk because nobody understands what it does. Therefore, it is dismissed. The only time that junk DNA actually plays a role is when people are looking at the telomeres. Telomeres are like the end caps, kind of like matchsticks. The longevity of that cell's DNA is depicted in the telomeres. Savants have the ability 
to access junk DNA with certain proteins, and nobody understands why. It's a, a genetic miracle that no one understands why happens. So I thought that today we can kind of revisit this whole blood thing. I'm still looking for that video. Um, but I want to just give you a small, fast uh, recap. Hold on. Here we go. What is going on? We're going to talk about blood quickly. And then you're going to see where I'm going with this. So we're going to talk about the blood types again, kind of revisit what they are in this really tidy, small video. So people have a refresher. Course. On guys, on checking in. Today, we are going to talk about blood, blood types. types. We are going to talk about antigens, antibodies, and RH factor. You got your notes ready? Because I'm ready. Let's get going. Today, we are going to talk about blood types. These blood types are type A, type B, type AB, and type O. For us to understand these blood types, we first need to understand the concepts of antigens and antibodies. Let's start with antigens. Antigens are what we call surface markers. They are called surface markers because they can be found within the surface of the red blood cell. So if this is your red blood cell, these are your antigens. They're on the surface of the red blood cells. They're called markers because the blood type that you have depends on what kind of antigen you have on your red blood cell. So if you have an A antigen within your red blood cell, your blood type is a type A blood. So if you have a B antigen on the surface of your red blood cell, your blood type is the type B blood. Now, if your red blood cell contains both antigen A and antigen B, your blood type is type AB. Now, if you do not have any antigens on your red blood cell, then you are a type O. Now, we can remember this as zero, meaning you have zero antigens on your red blood cell. That is a type O blood type. So aside from surface markers, these antigens have another important function. And that is, these antigens can trigger an immune response. And for them to do this, they have to interact with antibodies. In contrast with these antigens, these antibodies are found outside the red blood cell. They are found within the plasma. And the primary action of these antibodies are to interact with an opposite antigen to trigger an immune response. So let us discuss antibodies of each blood types that we have, starting off with type A blood. The way our blood works is that usually we have an opposite antibodies in relation to our antigens. So if we have an a antigen on a red blood cell, our antibodies are anti-B antibodies. So by its name anti-B, it will only attack B antigens. What do I mean by that? So if a type A person gets a type A blood, there will be no reaction or immune response. Why? Because these antibodies will only react to B antigens. But if this person gets a blood type B, these antibodies will interact with B antigens because they are anti-B, meaning they will go to these antigens and destroy them. This is usually the transfusion reaction that people experience when they receive an incompatible blood type. Now let's talk about type B blood. Again, antibodies are usually opposite of the antigens. Now for this blood type who has a B antigen, you will have anti-A antibodies. 
you get a type B blood, there will be no reaction. Why? Because these will only react to antigen A. B antigens, no reaction. However, if you get a type AB blood, wherein you have both type A and type B antigens, these are anti-A antibodies. They will still interact with the A antigens of this red blood cell, causing a transfusion reaction. Next blood type is for type AB blood. Remember, always the opposite, right? So if both antigens are present on the surface of this red blood cell, the opposite of both, there will be no antibodies floating around the plasma. So if you get a type A blood, no reaction will take place. Why? Because there's no antibodies, right? Same goes if you put a type AB blood or a type B blood or a type O blood. No reaction will take place for this patient who have AB blood type because there are no antibodies in this person's blood. This is why a person with a type AB blood, they are considered to be the universal recipient, meaning they can have any types of blood, type A, type AB, type B, type O, there will be no reaction. Now let's move forward to type O blood. O meaning zero antigens, right? So again, the opposite concept of antibodies and antigens. If you do not have any antigens on the surface of a type O blood, what do you think you have on the plasma? We have anti-A and anti-B antibodies. Always the opposite. Zero antigens, anti-A and anti-B antibodies in the plasma. Having anti-A and anti-B antibodies on the plasma, this can only mean one thing. And that is, it can only get a type O blood type. Because type O blood type does not have any antigens on the surface. Meaning, these anti-A and anti-B will have no antigens to attack. Only type O blood types can be given to a type O patient. Meaning, if you give a patient a type A blood, anti-A antibodies will attack this blood type because you have A antigens. The same goes with type B blood because we have anti-B antibodies. Since type O blood does not contain any antigens on the surface, this blood type can be considered to be a universal donor. Check this out. If you give this type O blood on a person with type A blood, meaning they have A antigens here and they will have anti-B antibodies, these antibodies will not react because they don't have any antigens to react to, right? The same goes with blood type B where they have B antigens on the surface and they have anti-A antibodies. These antibodies cannot destroy this. No antigens present. And of course, type AB person who does not have any antibodies will have no reaction at all, thus making type O blood to be a universal donor. And the way you're going to remember this is that type O for donor. So O, they're both O's. Zero antigens are universal donor. So let us review. Type A blood will have A antigens on the surface of the red blood cell. And for the antibodies, they will have anti-B. Type B blood type will have B antigens on the surface of the red blood cell, and they will have an anti-A antibodies. Type AB blood type will have both A and B antigens. They will not have any antibodies on their plasma. And lastly, type O blood type, they will not have any antigens on the surface of the red blood cell, but they will have anti-A and anti-B antibodies. So again, it's always the opposite. A antigen, anti-B. B antigen, anti-A. A and B antigens, no antibodies. Zero antigens, you will have anti-A and anti-B antibodies. So with these blood types, 
let's see what kind of blood types they will be compatible with. So for type A blood type, you can have type A blood and a type O blood. Anti-B won't have any reactions to this because it has only A antigens and anti-B won't have any reaction to this because it does not have any antigens on the surface. For type B blood, you can have type B blood and type O. Again, no reactions for anti-A because this have B antigens and this does not have any antigens on the surface. For type AB blood, you can have type A, type B, type AB, and type O. So because there are no antibodies on this blood type, AB blood types can receive A, B, AB, and O, making AB the universal recipient. And lastly, for type O blood, you can only have type O. Just because anti-A, anti-B can potentially destroy A, B, and AB, you can only have a type O blood for a type O blood type. As you can see, for every category, A, B, A, B, and O, type O blood types can be given to these blood types, making type O blood types to be the universal donor. O for zero antigen and O for universal donor. Now that we are familiar with what is compatible for each blood type, let us briefly talk about the RH factor. The RH factor usually tells us whether you are a positive blood type or a negative blood type. So if you have an RH factor on the surface of your red blood cells, such as these, your blood type will be a positive blood type. If you have A antigens on your red blood cells plus the RH factor, that makes you an A positive blood type. For B antigens with the RH factor, that makes you a B positive blood type. For A and B antibodies on the surface, plus the RH factor, you're going to have an AB positive blood type. And lastly, zero antigens, but with an RH factor, you are going to have an O positive blood type. So think about this way. The positive simply indicates the presence of these RH factor on the surface of your red blood cell. However, the absence of the RH factor on the surface of your red blood cells make you a negative blood type. So for A antigens without the RH factor, that makes you an A negative blood type. Same goes with the B antigens. No RH factor, that makes you a B negative blood type. A and B antigens, no RH factors, A B negative blood type. And lastly, no antigens, no RH factor, that makes you an O negative blood type. Now looking at this chart, we have already established what blood types are compatible with each blood type. When we add RH factor in the equation, it gets more specific. Let's talk about it. So for positive blood types, they can have a positive and negative blood types. So for patients with A positive blood types, they can have blood that are A positive, O positive, A negative, and O negative. The same goes with B positive blood types. So if you have a patient with a B positive blood type, they can have a B positive blood type, O positive, B negative, and O negative. A B positive, they can have A positive, B positive, A B positive, O positive. They can also have A negative, B negative, A B negative, and O negative blood types. And finally, for patients with O positive blood types, they can have an O positive or an O negative blood types. However, it gets different when you have a negative blood type, meaning you do not have any RH factor on the surface of your red blood cell. So if you have a negative blood type, you can only have a negative blood type as a donor, meaning for A negative patients, you can only have A negative and O negative blood types. For B negative blood types, you can only have B negative and O negative blood types. For AB negative, you can only have A negative, B negative, 
AB negative and O negative. And finally, for O negative blood types, you can only have a negative blood type. Again, for positive blood types, meaning positive RH factors on the surface of their red blood cell, they can have a positive and negative blood type. For negative blood types, they can only have negative blood types. That's it. So that is it for today, guys. I hope you guys found that video helpful. If you haven't already, please hit the like and subscribe and button. And I am hoping I that my microphone is better. I, I don't know what to do. I will look into it. Like I said, I had technical difficulties today. So um, this could be one of them. Uh, now, blood types, why are they so important? Well, blood types have to do with um, uh, actually survival of the species. Believe it or not, you know, people that are O negative, women that are O negative cannot easily and without intervention carry children that are positive blood types. So resist is the, is the factor that we're looking into. And then we look at the antigens. Turns out O has all the antigens, doesn't want anybody right? Except for itself. And O negative doesn't want anything except for literally it. And AB can take everything from anyone. And the only deciding factor would be if uh, the res is back. So why am I saying this? Because blood is something that everyone's infatuated with. And what people don't know is that your blood can give so much information about one drop of your blood can actually reveal your history of viruses. This was a report from CBS hmm, seven years ago. Morning rounds, a major new breakthrough in diagnosis. The test can reveal virtually every virus you've ever had using a single drop of blood. Our Dr. David Agus is with us from Los Angeles. David, good morning. Good morning this Nora. is just incredible, the hope of a test like this. What can we learn from knowing all the viruses that we've had? Well, there are about 200 viruses that affect humans. And so every time you have a virus, you make an immune response, which are antibodies in the blood. And this test is able to look at all of them. So from one drop of blood, it could tell you every virus you've been exposed to. What it means now is we're going to know what you've been exposed to and what you may be infected with now. But it's going to be dramatic in terms of disease going forward. Should everybody go out and get this test? Well, nobody can right now. The test costs about $25 to do. It's not yet on the market. It'll probably be a year or so undergoing reviews. But my, what I really believe is every year you go to a doctor, we're going to take a drop of that blood, and we're going to get your viral history for that year. And we know certain diseases now, like inflammatory bowel disease, asthma, and diabetes type 1, may be affected by viruses you've been exposed to. But I bet you many other diseases it's going to play a role in. And so this is going to be a very important part of medicine going forward. It's big data for all of us. Dr. Agus, one of the concerns with the, with the home DNA testing, right, was that it could give us a lot more information. But big data, big data. But if, if all that information wasn't put in context, is that a concern of yours here at all? Well, you, you hit it. That word context is key in medicine. This test will be done by physicians where they'll discuss it with the patient. In the study done in the medical journal Science, the group at Harvard showed that on average, individuals have about 10 virus families that they've been infected with in their lifetime, some going much higher. And as we go to the doctor going forward, we'll know what that means. But the key is that context. And that's what's going to happen with research over the next year or so. I'm trying to figure out why I want to know every virus that I've ever had. How is that going to help me? Well, it may say, you know, Gail, when Gail was exposed to these fire viruses before she's 20, she's higher risk for a particular disease going forward. Mm. So let's start to screen for it. It's going to know a lot more about Gail so we can personalize treatment for Gail. Gail. Okay. And, and often and more than know, the better you can Personalized medicine. Personalized medicine. Genetic 
databases, data of viruses, because we want to know. Here's this weird, weird thing that NBC put out. Raise yourselves. In America, blood means big business. This is whole multi-billion dollar industry, and there are centers all over the country. The North American blood market was valued at $3.3 billion in 2021. And America's blood makes up over 2% of U.S. exports. And since there is no substitute for human blood, demand can be hard to meet. You're at a one-day supply of blood right now? One-day supply of blood. There are still sporadic shortages. And that could have life or death consequences. This is a public health resource. It gives life. It's an amazing thing. But there are still hurdles for some groups. A historic FDA study that could reverse a ban on gay men who want to donate blood. The FDA's blood ban, it's not following the signs. Griffles, CSL Plasma, Takeda's BioLife, and Octopharma are huge players in the blood collection space, particularly plasma. And donors are compensated. And that plasma can be used for therapies provided by big pharmaceutical companies. The collection of blood plasma for compensation is banned in most of the world. The U.S. supplies 70% of the world's plasma, creating this unique American blood economy. Got rewarded for donating, has kept me donating because I, I couldn't make it otherwise. I couldn't buy gas. I couldn't pay my, my car insurance. Here's how the weird economy of blood works and why the U.S. is such a major player. You either make what's called a whole blood donation, which takes about 30 minutes, where you give roughly a pint of blood. Plasma donation is quite different from a whole blood donation. Or you give what's called an apheresis unit, which is a little more extensive. You get hooked up to a, a similar machine. And this machine extracts blood and it separates the yellowish plasma component from the rest of the blood cells. And that's a, a greater time commitment. And then you get a cookie. One blood donation can be broken down into different components. That way, more than one patient can be treated. Look at this vial of blood. You'll see the red blood cells making up the bottom portion, a white layer in the middle, that's the white blood cells and platelets, and then the yellowish section, that's plasma, making up 55% of blood. And it transports nutrients, hormones, proteins uh, to the parts of the body that need it. So due to its nutrient-rich properties, blood plasma is used in medicines to treat a range of medical conditions. The U.S. blood supply ran dangerously low over the pandemic. With a, the cancellation of elective surgeries, we suddenly had a surplus of blood. Then COVID caused cancellations of thousands of blood drives across the country. Plus, the baby boomers are aging out of the donor pool. And we're not seeing younger generations pick up the slack, and we need them to very badly. As a millennial, it didn't make sense to just edit this story without going and donating blood myself. In order to qualify to be a blood donor, you have to be healthy. And then there are certain things that can defer someone from donating. You have to fill out an extensive donor history questionnaire, also making sure that your blood will be safe for the donor. So this is me. That you haven't had something in some exposures, some diseases, through has been a new blood test that should ensure that in future nobody contracts AIDS from a blood transfusion. So in 1983, when due to people contracting HIV from the U.S. blood supply, again, this was back when there was very little known 
uh, about HIV, the FDA implemented a blanket ban and added a question to its blood donor questionnaire, have you had sex with another man since 1977? And if the answer to that question was yes, you were banned from donating blood. That's when the lifetime ban on these donors was implemented. In 2015, it was rolled back to a 12-month deferral. Then in 2020, when the pandemic struck, it was rolled back further to three months' time due to the urgent need for blood donors. A 2014 report found that allowing this community equal access to donating blood could increase the blood supply by 2% to 4% every year. Here we are 40 years later, and there is still government policy that stigmatizes gay and bisexual and other men who have sex with men and carries forward this false notion that there's something inherently diseased about being gay. There are 13 tests performed on each unit of donated blood, no matter who donated the blood. At the end of this month, my husband and I are going to be celebrating our, oh, I have to get this right or I'm going to get in trouble, our 16th uh, wedding anniversary, even though my husband and I choose not to have an open relationship. We can't donate blood. Uh, and and that that's just ridiculous. Outside of a medical facility, plasma is a product. Pharma companies use plasma to make treatments. Interestingly, nearly all of our plasma in the U.S. is sent to Europe, where the fractionators exist. So these fractionators will, will separate the plasma into its component parts and then sell it back to the U.S. and other parts of the world. In the U.S., it's legal to pay people for their blood. For, for someone who's 60 years old, I've got good veins. My, my name is Teresa, and I live in Panama City Beach, Florida. I started donating my plasma because of my 80-year-old mother who had some blood issues. She, she passed away back in March, and I know she wasn't getting mine, but at least it helped the cause. I can make $650 to $700 a month extra. And, and that, that helps a lot when you're on a fixed income. There's also four major plasma companies that they run basically 80% of plasma donation centers in the United States. And they all stem from companies that aren't U.S.-based. These are CSL Plasma, which is an Australian company, Griffles, which is a Spanish company. There's BioLife, that's owned by Takeda, which is a Japanese pharmaceutical company. And then there's Octopharma, which is a Swiss company. The profit margin is, is high. However, uh, that information is actually really hard to come by because it is a for-profit industry. Most companies didn't get back to CNBC or declined an interview. But CSL Plasma said it makes a substantial contribution to the economic and social well-being of our communities of interest. Plasma donation are advertising $900 for your first month giving plasma. Then it goes down. Usually people can make $30 to $50 each time they go. Centers tend to have different promotions. They have referral programs where they give you and the person you refer a bonus for coming in. They're really being creative with the strategies that they use to recruit people to become plasma donors. And once people become donors, then they, they really try and incentivize them to keep coming back. Clinics are increasingly set up in low-income communities. So what myself and colleagues have worked on is mapping out the location of plasma centers and seeing if there's a correlation between the address of the center and the poverty level of the area. And what we have found is that they are, in fact, overrepresented in high-poverty areas. So both plasma donations and the number of centers have been on the rise. That's more money in donors' pockets. 
especially for those who depend on the extra income. Paso, Texas is the city where the majority of blood plasma is collected in the U.S. People cross the U.S.-Mexico border to sell their plasma and they would go back to Mexico. And if you did this regularly, you could actually make more money than the minimum wage that you would make working full-time in, in Juarez. CSL Plasma said it selects sender locations based on population density, availability of real estate property, and local zoning laws. PPTA, a plasma industry group, told CNBC a significant amount of effort goes into planning. Companies consider feedback from local communities, access to a skilled workforce, public health data on the local population, and health is a key consideration to ensure the safest possible plasma. Americans can legally donate plasma twice a week, equaling 104 times a year. The impact of losing that much plasma on the body hasn't really been independently studied. But one small study of 64 participants found around 70% of donors experienced some health complications. They did something that impacts the body physiologically. I've heard of people who said that they need to wait a little bit or they need to drink some liquids if they feel lightheaded, for instance. And they might feel woozy or fatigued or, or blackout. The only thing that I, I find is that sometimes I get tired and then I'll take a week's break. I drink lots of water, too. I've heard people that ha have had problems. So far, I have. And I'm, I'm 60. I'm, I'm trying to help and make some extra money at the same time. CSL Plasma told CNBC, plasma donors come from many socioeconomic groups. We work to ensure plasma donors have a positive, comfortable and safe experience and are committed to the highest standards of quality and safety. Safety net is not adequate in the United States and people need to make ends meet. You know, people do what they have to do. There's the viewpoint that this is something that's exploitative, that these companies are coming into low-income neighborhoods and they're taking advantage of vulnerable populations. And then on the flip side, well, at least there's an opportunity here that's legal. It's one of the few legal ways that people could literally spend an hour and a half or so and make 50 bucks. That might make a really big difference in their lives. The FDA has all the tools it needs at its disposal to lift the ban and uh, follow the lead of other nations like Italy and Spain and Great Britain and Australia. It's really a matter of uh, socio-political will. They are moving in the right direction. The FDA is now conducting a study, the Assessing Donor Variability and New Concepts in Eligibility, also known as the Advanced Study, meant to investigate whether donor deferral can be based on individual risk assessment instead of the current broad time-based deferrals. And if the advanced study reaches its aim of enrolling enough men and can show that that blood is safe, then the FDA has the data, should have the data that will allow them to roll back the policy. I don't know what they'll roll it back to, um, but we hope that they will roll it back to individual risk-based assessment. What we're advocating for at GMHC is a shift from a blood donor questionnaire that screens people based on their identity to a blood donor history tool that screens people based on the behavior that they do that could place them at risk with exposure to HIV within that window period of time where the best available modern testing might miss that exposure in their blood. That should apply to everyone. And that's what will create the safest blood supply. Ochoa says that starting to look at the effect plasma donations have on the bodies of those donating would be a great place to start. In the United States, the FDA does regulate how often people can give plasma, 
But it's really not based on any particular research that has said, you know, you could give two times per week and it's safe. It really is more of an arbitrary number. If you go to Germany, for instance, is one of the other countries where you can collect blood plasma, uh, but it's about half the amount of times that you could collect in, from a single person you know, in the United States. And so I, I do think it's really important for researchers to investigate what the physiological impacts are. The FDA told CNBC that plasma donation is generally a safe procedure. The FDA first established standards for the frequency of plasma donation after careful consideration of available data on the safety of the donor and product quality and discussion with an advisory committee in 1973. So my, my hemovores episode was banned by YouTube at some point uh, because of the expose I did that they're preying on the younger on the younger population, the poorer population, and you know the urban areas that are suffering. And I talked about the safety. You should go see the hemovores episode I did two years ago. This was actually aired by NBC uh, on June 30th of 2022 which, uh, again, is important because it tells you everything they're doing. Uh, it falls into monitoring everything there is to monitor about human beings. Uh, <laughs> I really don't understand how people don't see it. One drop of blood can find out if you have viruses. It can pull out your genetic code and everything you ate. Thank you for sharing this with me. I wanted to show this. This is something that I was looking for. But here's why it's important. See, even NBC did a report, which is important because of this. This here is the issue. One drop of blood, and they can tell if you are immune, if you are immunized, or if you are diseased. And you flash your QR code heading into, you know, uh, I don't know, a concert, and it gives you a red Sorry, You're not allowed in. You're not healthy. You want to go fly and see your mom. You scan your card, and suddenly it's red, and it's like, why? I'm not sick. Yeah, so the test says that um, you're in red. So you can't get in. I think we heard about this in China, didn't we? We did. That's a really big problem. But the majority of this is for something called pre-crime. And I'll tell you, the, the one thing that I did in Puerto Rico, well, we'll talk about that. So pre-crime, I talked about it before because I told you that uh, it was, in fact, uh, Bill Barr that uh, kicked that off. In fact, there are ways to be able to determine through, get this, background noise to actually catch criminals. Background noise to catch criminals. It's all about frequency. Yeah, take a listen. Through these power lines, changes direction constantly. A full cycle, back and, back forth, and forth, 50 times a second. 60 in some other parts of the world, but here in Europe, 50 times a second. But that transmission isn't perfectly efficient. There are imperfections and stray electromagnetic fields, and a little bit of that power becomes vibration, which makes sound at that frequency of 50 hertz, or 100, or other multiples of 50. That's the mains hum that you can sometimes hear coming from power lines, or maybe from speakers that aren't quite plugged in properly. Also, that hum isn't exactly 50 cycles a second. The grid frequency shifts slightly and constantly over time as the engineers in charge balance supply and demand. It's only a tiny fraction of a shift, but it's there. The whole grid runs at the same slightly wobbling almost 50 hertz, no matter where you are. 
that mains hum can be really annoying for people recording audio. You can hear it in the background sometimes. But if you were to log what that wobbling grid frequency was every second of every day, keep all that in the database, and then compare it to recordings with mains hum on them, then in theory, you'd have a perfect watermark to prove the time when anything was recorded. I talked to one of the forensic experts who works with it and also set them a challenge. Historically, uh, what's had to happen is we've had to record the grid frequency data ourselves by literally plugging a recording device into the mains. Uh, the National Grid have recently released their data, seven years, recorded right at the source. It's, it's fairly simple, actually, signal processing. You're looking to see if there is a component around 50 hertz or one of the harmonics. I would hesitate against advising anyone to present themselves to a court as a forensic expert, but this type of evidence has been used in court to date recordings. The longer recording you have, the better. As an absolute minimum, I think about a minute. If it's a noisy recording or if the ENF isn't particularly clear, then the longer recording you have, the better. So find the mains hum frequency in the footage and then write code to match it against the millions of possibilities in the national grid logs. Does it work? Well, to find out, I asked some friends of mine who make videos to send me over some of their raw footage, straight out of the camera, unprocessed, unfiltered, and I asked the forensic team, can you timestamp it? First up, footage from Taha, one of the team behind educational channel Answer in Progress. There's quite a strong component here, and you can see it's got a bit of a wobble. We use a signal processing algorithm to extract the peak, and we constrain that algorithm so that it can't suddenly jump up here. Um, so even if there is a, a higher amplitude something up here, it, it will stick to this curve. Then compare. If we know that a recording was taken on a certain day, then we just need to give it a day's worth of national grid data. If we're not sure when it was taken, we'll throw everything at it and it'll take a bit longer to process, but it's not prohibitive. Spot on. Got it to the second. Although it's important to say that the team never said they were certain about the timing, only that they had a very high chance of being correct. And yes, they were. Next up, footage from Hannah Witten, sex and relationships educator. There wasn't um, a component at around 50 hertz. So here we have the axis 49 hertz to 51 hertz, and we can see no apparent ENF trace. So now I'm going to change the axes up to around 100, and then we'll be able to see the harmonic component around 100 hertz. Because it's quite strong and seems to be behaving in a way that we'd expect the ENF to behave, we can be fairly confident that this is an ENF harmonic. What's interesting about this one is it sort of appears halfway through the recording. Um, maybe there's a, a little bit of something earlier on. But, so there's a possibility that maybe Hannah was moving around when she made this recording, um, getting closer or further away from mains-powered equipment. Maybe the mains hum was coming from something on a timer or a thermostat in the background that just switched off, but the timestamp was accurate. So the next test was Steve Mould from his science channel, and I thought that this one would be easy because he sent B-roll. He's not talking, it's just ambient noise. And also he is holding a fan that's plugged into the mains. There's no strong component at all for ENF. So the next step would be to look at the um, other frequency regions to see if we can identify any harmonics. How loud the person is often doesn't have much of an effect. It's often environmental noise um, that would be lower to, to mask ENF. There is possibly something here, um, but because we haven't got a strong trace is sort of fading in and out. We wouldn't be confident to use this for an ENF analysis. Sometimes it just doesn't work. As a last test, I sent over some of my old footage from when I was filming against green screen in my tiny flat last year. I was sneaky though, and I hid an edit in there. What could happen with an edit is you'll have a sudden jump in ENF frequency. In that case, it's quite likely to be an edit. It's possible that the ENF trace will just sort of stop 
The reason for that could be because it's got an edit in, which in this case we believe it has. It could also be because you walked away from the source of the ENF energy. Like any forensic analysis, this isn't some magic tool that always works. Compression can stop it working. You need minutes of uninterrupted audio to have enough confidence in the result, and sometimes there might be no background mains hum at all. But I love this, because it's an accident of technology that's created a tool that would sound like science, science fiction 20 years ago. And what is that science fiction? That they can detect when you recorded something, when you were on air, when you edited something live or not. And how do they do this? They do this for monitoring the electronic, well, the electro electrical network frequency. Electrical network frequency, it has its own language, its own fingerprint, its own DNA. Huh. So weird. So now you can discern with good confidence, but not always correct, where someone was, like they said in the video, the girl must have been near a thermostat giving that bass hum that may have turned off or something, and that's why it was non-existent afterwards. So you would need a constant frequency as a baseline in order to be able to check against to see where someone was located, if something they were doing was correct. While they were talking, you'd know where they are. While they were videotaping, you'd know where they are. That's weird. Down to the T to use an electronic, an electrical frequency. Electrical, electrical frequency to be able to pinpoint the location of people. That's weird. Pre-crime is pretty crazy. It is. Facial recognition, <laughs> that's nothing. Psychonomy is <laughs> physiognomy, say it correctly, physiognomia, whatever, is uh, pretty scary. <laughs> This is Critical Comms World in Barcelona, Spain. Despite being held in the same venue as the world's largest cell phone event, Mobile World Congress, this is a conference few other than those directly involved in emergency services would even know existed. This is where mobile vendors showcase their latest and greatest in a market worth more than $300 billion a year. And this year, it was a Motorola product that everyone had their eyes on. It's called IDP, Intelligent Data Portal, but that could just as easily be Intelligent Data Policing. It's not only about where crimes are being committed right now, but also where the next crime could occur and by whom. Tom Quirk heads government products at Motorola. We see our customers operating in three ways. Before an incident, sometimes known as pre-incident, during an incident, mid-incident, after an incident, post-incident. What Public Engines provides us is a way to actually start to analyze crime patterns, map them out with hotspots and trends, but also actually go that next step in terms of predicting where the crime is going to occur. Motorola is in a unique position to build out a network like IDP. They control the lion's share of the police radio market, something which means they have a device on thousands of officers on the beat. 
IDP works by getting a lot of different data streams, some of which are public data streams that you can pull through, such as the weather reports, etc. Some of them are very highly secure data streams, such as where are all the police officers are from their radio, and allows you to see what they're doing, what they're assigned, and also where they're coming from. And while Motorola's equipment might own the radio market, when you see what the company has in mind for its next-gen system, you realize they're talking more than just walkie-talkies. These are smart glasses, the self-contained set of glasses with a heads-up display, a camera, a gyroscope, and a compass in there, so we know exactly where uh, uh, the police officer is and in which direction he's looking. There's a two-way information flow, so we can both see pictures taken from that camera and feed those through to the control room, and we can feed information back to the officer, which he can read in the lower part of his uh, right eye. Uh, names, information, mapping information, for example. You're also tracking the use of the gun. Motorola's system integrator can build that into our smart belt. So, for example, withdrawing the pistol would trigger uh, an event into the belt, which is again fed through Bluetooth to the hub, and we can then feed that information straight up to the uh, control room so they know that that weapon has been drawn. Well, this is the connected police officer. He is top to toe, Bluetooth connected, absolutely. All the information from officers on the beat feeds back into a centralized data center. And they say what happens next is changing the policing landscape. In 2015, Motorola acquired Public Engines, a company that does the back-end analysis of all those data streams. So this product brings together data from a number of different data sources. I can see everything on the map, all the incidents that are happening. I've also got a view of all the resources, so police cars, uh, policemen wandering around with mobile radios. If they have video cameras connected over LTE, we can, we can view those as well. We link into third-party systems such as number plate recognition systems, facial recognition systems, video analytics in general, and all that information appears on the map. Now, let's imagine there's a football match happening tomorrow. If we can track people, maybe via border control, maybe via um, hotel registrations or facial recognition cameras, we can see people coming into the area check them against a known list of troublemakers. So if there are four or five, then maybe that's really when you should start to take notice. So the system will generate an alarm. They still haven't done anything at the moment, but at that point, the police could say, let's deploy some resources so that they're ready for any trouble if it happens. And IDP data streams aren't just restricted to the real world. The system can also detect unrest on social networks, pinpointing that sentiment to locations using a post GPS information. But this all raises the obvious privacy concerns. How do you ensure that this data is secure and, and stays private? Uh, well, all, all the transfer of data over networks can be fully encrypted. The, the LTE transfer, we can run secure uh, tunnels so that that data is can't can't be hacked into. Obviously, once the data is in the police systems, then they're in a secure environment anyway. Motorola also says the system adds transparency with secure environment with the police and the government. Okay. Well, did you guys know that the pre-crime uh, there was a pre-crime detection active shooters. Uh, there's actually uh, predictive policing systems for this. Um, and yes, X Ventures is the one that's leading this. Certified by the California Department of Justice to participate in electronic surveillance and interception and in cyber investigations. I have over 29 years of law enforcement experience. I've had the unique experience of working on both sides, advising companies in Asia and in the US regarding 
uh, lawful government access to data, risk minimization, data privacy. And on the US side, working as a law enforcement officer using legal process to obtain data held by enterprises such as telecoms and social media for the purpose of criminal investigation. Well, in the next 40 minutes, we're gonna cover a lot of ground. We're gonna explore the challenges of identifying active shooters before they commit an active shooting. We're going to understand behavioral threat assessment factors to identify potential shooters in a high impact event. Today's talk is a thought experiment. Uh, can we harness technology to identify people who are likely to commit this future crime and intervene to stop the crime from happening? Now, I'm a lawyer and I'm a police officer, but today the discussion is really not much about law or legality. It's about technical possibility and social utility and trade-offs. The system we're going to discuss today is, at least partially, illegal under current law. Uh, the question really is, could it be built or should it be built? So when we talk about an active shooter, how do we define and distinguish that criminal versus someone who otherwise randomly kills somebody? Well, the FBI defines an active shooter as an individual actively engaged in killing or attempting to kill people in a confined and populated area. There's no pattern or method to their selection of the victims. Take a moment to look at the people in this slide. Can you identify the active shooter? Look at it carefully, take your time. Okay, the answer is that every one of the people shown in the previous slide is or was an active shooter. There's no profile of an active shooter. Active shootings, of course, are not new. They've occurred for many decades, but the frequency has increased despite firearm purchase and possession becoming more restrictive in many states. And in addition, what constitutes an active shooting for statistical purposes, um, well, it's subject to a definitional difference. And in our particular example here, uh, details do matter. But for our discussion today, we don't have to dig into a lot of those details. We just have to hit some key points. The US Secret Service and other researchers have done a lot of work in the area of active shooter threat assessment both in general and in regard to targeted school violence. The FBI has taken a similar approach called mobilization indicators as related to terrorism. As we're gonna to discuss today, the key to the work the Secret Service has done relates to the quantification of specific behavioral threat indicators that a person's behavior can be benchmarked against. A scoring or a weighting system can be defined, and if a particular threshold is passed, that a multidisciplinary team of humans can make an assessment based on the data and follow up for potential intervention before a crime took place.